You right there. High five on that one. Okay. We're on. You go, girl. We're on. Okay. Sit here for a sec. He's got to start. We're alive, so come sit over here. Outside, divide, half, tent wall. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your words. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked bind me with ropes, I will not forget your law. At midnight I rise to give thanks, give you thanks for your righteous laws. I am a friend to all who fear you, to all who follow your precepts. The earth is filled with your love. O oh Lord, teach me your decrees. Good stuff. Okay, here's what we got. Um, uh, some prayer requests. My friend Paul, he's having a bit of trouble. Uh, yeah, I can say because I didn't say his last name with his neighbors. We're alive. Um, got some problems with his neighbors, very belligerent people, and it's causing a lot of stress. And then he's got some uh, health problems with his brother's wife, serious health problems. And then Kathleen, who fell here at church. Mm. Okay, I'm going to tell you what happened. We've been praying for her. She's had some difficulties. Uh, and I know I can tell you this because she knows that we're praying for her, but she, uh, she, uh, uh, had some numbers that were so high they actually sent the police to her house to check to see if she was alive and they rushed her in uh told her you need to get to the hospital and uh she had a number that was uh, i don't know what it means but it's supposed to be like a thousand in a normal person it was over a million and uh, uh they they were concerned that this was terminal and uh they said it could be leukemia it could be something like that Anyway, um, yesterday she came back from the hospital and she said they gave her a completely clean bill of health. Really? The Lord healed her. So, oh, yeah, yeah I, I'm, unbelievable. I mean, Yay. that's the kind of thing that you just don't hear about much, but oh. the Lord has a reason for everything that happens. Amen. And sometimes he says, well, I'm not going to heal this person. Sometimes he says, I'm going to heal them by taking them home. And sometimes he heals them right here. But uh, she, she was so excited. She actually called me on the phone yesterday and said, just praise the Lord. That's she was amazing. just... Oh, wonderful. Um, and then uh, let's see here. Uh, uh, all right, well, let's just go to prayer and uh, thank the Lord for today. Heavenly Father, we're certainly appreciative of all the things that you have done for us and the glorious hand that you have rested upon us and that uh, you've taken such good care of us as individuals. And you sometimes allow us to go through afflictions and that's your will. And sometimes you have us, uh, you heal us and that's your will and we will not interfere with it by claiming anything and uh, being proved false but rather we will pray for these things and we'll continue to do so knowing that uh, you listen to our prayers and you respond according to your wisdom and Lord we uh, ask that you bless this class we ask that you uh, uh, just help us to stick to your Bible properly without deviating from it in any way shape or form and if there's anything that is said that is incorrect in this class that uh, the people would uh, be alerted to that and that they would be willing to check for themselves rather than just uh, trusting a person. And uh, that's an important precept in today's world, which is often neglected. We certainly pray these things so that you will be glorified through your people and that uh, we will be built up properly in your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've got to read a couple things and I got a couple things more to uh, bring up. I guess the first thing I'll do right now is I uh, had my friend Adrian uh, sent me a 
Bible that he actually did the cover on it. I mean, oh. this is solid leather. It's like a four inches thick. I mean, it's amazing. Whoa. Maybe not that thick, but it is unbelievable. And he did this hand tooled it himself. And then he put my initials on the back, my real initial with, you know, but I, I'm covering up my first name because <laughs> only my mom is allowed to know my real first name. It's Charlie. That's what it is. So there you go. But he put my, I don't know how he knew my initials, but he did know my real first initial. So yeah. Um, let's see here. Today is the, anybody? Uh, 20th. 20th. Burke says it's the 20th. We're going to stick with it. Okay. 20th of uh, uh, August. Okay. So I, you know, I want to thank Adrian right now for that. I don't know if he's live with us or not, but wow, that is amazing. I, it just, yes. that'll be on the pulpit here forever. It's a um, thumper. It's, it's a Bible thumper. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. August 20th, little did he know what lay ahead. After finishing high school, uh, Haralan Popov left his village in Bulgaria and went to the city of Rus to look for work. There he lived in a tiny room with Christo, a friend from his village. One evening, Christo invited Haralan to a Baptist church, even though he knew Haralan was a convinced atheist. Haralan was impressed by the beautiful music and the intelligence of the speaker. All he could think about when he returned home that night was the question, is there a God? To help Haralan find the answer, Christo invited, introduced him to his friend Petrov. When Petrov explained what Christ meant to him, his face seemed to reflect God's love, and it became obvious to Haralan that God existed. As he spent more time with Petrov, Haralan came to understand that he wasn't seeking God. God was seeking him. He received Jesus Christ as a Savior, and his life was changed. To prepare himself for Christian service, Haralan attended Bible institutes in both Germany and England. He fell in love and married a Swedish Christian woman. Returning to Bulgaria, he pastored a church and served as an evangelist. Then in 1944, the Russian army invaded, and by 1947, Bulgaria was under a communist dictatorship. At 4 a.m. on July 24, 1948, Popov's doorbell rang, and he was snatched from his wife and two children by the police and sent to prison. At first, Popov was made to stand facing a wall at night without moving while being constantly questioned and berated. Then on August 5th, he was put into solitary confinement and subjected to the wall 24 hours a day. For 14 days, he faced the wall, not allowed to move or eat or drink, and was constantly interrogated and beaten. When the guards realized he was about to die, they gave him food and water and let him lie down. Popov thought that the worst was over. However, the next day, August 20th, 1948, the guard pointed a gun to his head and said he had five seconds to admit he was a spy. At this point, Popov was gladly anticipating death so he could be with Jesus. When the officer paused after counting to four, Popov, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, shouted, Don't wait! Shoot me straight in the head! The guard, who had been bluffing to extract a confession, was shocked by Harlan's bravery. Feeling like a puppet on a string, Popov cried out to God, I was faithful to death, but death didn't come. Popov's imprisonment continued, and despite the pain and suffering, he had the joy of leading many prisoners to Christ. He was released 13 years and two months after his arrest. After his release, he longed to be reunited with his family. They had fled to Sweden during his imprisonment, seeking religious and political freedom. Not sure if he would ever see them again in his life. Popov worked tirelessly organizing underground churches and helping to produce Bibles for them. Finally, we think we got it bad in America, oh, you know? Finally, Popov and his friends decided that he should attempt to leave Bulgaria and join his family in Sweden, where he could serve as the outside source for Bible smuggling. 
They knew it would take a miracle for communists to grant Popov a passport. With hundreds praying fervently, Popov's attempts to obtain a passport were repeatedly rejected. Then, inexplicably, he received a letter saying that he was free to go. On December 31st, 1962, Harlan Popov was reunited with his wife and family. It had been 14 and a half years, and now they were together in a free country. Harlan Popov became a world spokesman for oppressed Christians beyond, beyond, behind the Iron Curtain. Over and over, Harlan Popov was given strength and courage when he prayed for it. Do you ask for strength and courage when you need it? Do you expect it to come? How would your faith hold up under similar circumstances? And Romans 8 says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Well, amen to that. Um, I need you to come up here so people can see you. This is my mom just got a shirt. She just bought it 15 minutes ago. She walked in here with it on. and I thought it was so cute that I would uh, share it with you. It says... Uh, you got to turn around so they can see you. Can they see you there? Maybe they can't. It says Trump 45 because the 44 didn't work for eight years. So she's got a 45 caliber gun on there. And what is this? What is? Oh, I got a Trump 2020 shirt. Hey, good news. Okay, so uh, we're very Trumpish today, and the reason why is because last night a thug came and stole my Trump flag from off of my Trump flagpole, which is on our property, on our side of the fence, very high. They had to climb up onto my fence to get it down. So I have some surprises waiting for that person. The next time mom got me a Trump flag here and I will be putting that up. And, uh, and not what? identical. that's okay. It doesn't matter. As long next, as it's a flag, I will get it up on there and it will have some surprises for this individual. But there's my Trump flag. So I support our president. If you don't, that's fine. That's your choice. But I don't need people stealing uh, things off of my property. And uh, if he comes on the property again, he may not make it off in good shape. But we'll see. Anyway, we're in the book of Galatians right now. We're in Galatians uh, 3, verse 1, believe it or not. 3, verse 1. So uh, we'll go ahead and... Uh, yeah, I, I've got nine chihuahuas. This guy has got to know that when I let those things go, there's going to be a little bit of heck to pay. So, uh, yeah, and they'll know that uh, they came to the wrong house when nine chihuahuas start biting at the feet and they just keep biting until you're completely gone. So, okay, here we go. This is uh, Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Okay, let me read this one just because I was turning the page when you did that. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Okay, good stuff. Um, one thing, Charlie, my friend Charlie Messi out in California has been having some trouble with hyper-dispensationalism. People kind of attacking her over that. Um, and she asked me to give some comments on it. I'm not going to give a lot of comments on it today. Um, if something falls into place, we'll talk about it very shortly. Basically, basically what hyper-dispensational is, you got the regular dispensations, which are the seven dispensations of time that God is working through. And uh, hyper-dispensationalists divide 
the age of grace into two gospels, one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. They say that the church age actually began with the apostle Paul instead of with uh, Pentecost. They say that the letters, the seven letters to the uh, church, churches in Revelation are not addressed to the church. They're addressed to Jewish churches. Um, uh, by the way, we are, yeah, we are in the uh, book of Revelation in a daily commentary right now, which you can go every day to today on superiorword.org. And we uh, are posting, I think we posted 1-8 today. I may be wrong, but I think it's 1-8. And it is. Okay. And so um, uh, I would hope that you join there. The commentaries can get a little long. Some of them are two and three pages long. But um, uh, I address hyperdispensationalism probably four times in the first chapter. And um, I may not do it much after that. I may. But um, what I will say about that tonight, because she asked me to say something about hyperdispensationalism, is that hyperdispensationalism is a heresy. Okay, here we go. Um, this is Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians 3, verse 1. To begin the new chapter, Paul now directly addresses the Galatians. He had been referring to the account with Peter to explicitly show them that they had fallen into the same error and deserve the same rebuke as Peter received. And this is exactly what he does. He directly challenges their thinking process with the words, Oh, foolish Galatians. Here he uses the word anoetas. This gives the idea of not reasoning through a matter, meaning with proper logic. They're just simply not thinking. That helps word studies definition of it. It is used by Jesus in this memorable passage. Let me take you to Luke 24. And give me a second here. I've got a new Bible. It's going to take a while to get it broken in and get to pages quickly. So uh, bear with me. And it's a little tight because the box got rained on and it made it a little bit wet. Um, I've got some uh, oil to put on it. Burke recommended and we'll get that. But for right now, just bear with me. Apologize. Luke 24. And uh, let's see here, one more, no, 25 through 27. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken, out not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounding to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That he uses that word there. So he's. What's that? Too bad those things aren't written. Oh, I know. I mean, but, well, they are, because the apostles did write what they had heard, and um, the things that are meant to be heard are heard. So, uh, uh, you know, I was finishing up the book of Revelation on the, uh, uh, you know, the the DVDs that I listened to, or not DVDs, the uh, uh, MP3 player that uh, I listen to when I'm driving, and I got to the part where it says, um, do not write down what the seven thunders have uttered. And I go, oh, I just want to know, you know. But obviously, the seven thunders are something that are so clearly going to give away what is being said. Uh, and, and, you know, that's one of the things I gave this. I, I'll stop right there just because you brought this up and got me onto a rabbit trail. So I'm blaming this on Burke Carrico. Um, uh, the um, uh, book of Revelation is not, is not a tool to predict the future. It's not to be used that way, and that is the way it is almost always used. So I just recommended that you come to the book of Revelation and read the daily commentary. If you are going there and starting that commentary in hopes that I will be predicting the future, you might as well stop right now or not read it at all, because I am not going to go in that approach. That is not what the book of Revelation is for. Can anybody tell me very succinctly what the book of Revelation is for? 
Jesus. Explaining Jesus Christ to unveil or reveal. The word is apocalypto. It means to uh, unveil Jesus Christ. That is what it's for. It is to show the glory of Christ and his covenant faithfulness to us, to, well, to us but more specifically to, the to the Jewish people. They have missed the boat. They have missed the boat. The seven letters to the seven churches are all Gentile churches, and <clears throat> they are uh, written to, it says, I typed a commentary for this just a day ago, write the things which you have seen, which are in the things that are to come. And that right there gives you a clue to the structure of the book of Revelations. If you just go to that verse and read the commentary that I give in a couple days, you will understand that. And then from there, you will understand exactly what God is doing. It is unveiling Jesus Christ and is showing us something after the church age. And you can, you can know that explicitly. You don't need to guess on it, but it is not showing you the, how to predict the future. So please, if you're using the book like that or the book of Daniel, etc., to predict the future, the best thing to do is not to email me because I'm either not going to respond or if I do, I'm going to say I disagree with that approach. It, it's inappropriate to be trying to predict the future. What we need to know about the rapture is written. It's in the Bible and it tells us what we need to know. But the other things about the rapture, like the date of it, we're not going to know that because the Lord has not revealed that to us. It is going to happen. It's going to happen sometime. It's not if or but. It is definitely going to happen. But when? We'll just leave that to the Lord. He says that explicitly just before he ascends in Acts 1, 6 and 7. He says the times and the seasons are not for you to know. Okay, and then Paul repeats that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is. He uses the same exact same expression. It's the only time it's used other than when Jesus said it. Do you, uh, not that he speaks about the times and the seasons, saying that we are not going to know. But here's the information you do need to know. So if you're going to read the book of Revelation or the commentary and want to predict the future, you've got the wrong study guide. It's not going to help you from Charlie Garrett's commentary. Okay, so um, the people, we're getting back into Galatians chapter 3-1 now. The people spoke uh, to, had heard the scriptures. This is the Galatians. They had heard the scriptures their entire lives, and yet they failed to make the connection concerning what had to occur. That was, I'm sorry, that's, there is referring to Jesus. Jesus had the scriptures uh, or the Jews had the scriptures, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones. So that's the context. I, I got off on that. The people that Jesus spoke to in those verses from Luke chapter 24 had heard the scriptures their entire lives, and yet they failed to make the connection concerning what had to occur. Christ had to be crucified. And not only that, not only did the scriptures say that, but Jesus told him at what? At least three or four times during the ministry. He told him that he would be crucified and handed over to sinful men, etc., the information was right there in front of them, and yet they couldn't see what it was telling them. Paul will convey the same idea to those at Galatia. It should be noted that he is referring to the moral judgment of the believers or the believing Galatians concerning Jesus Christ. He's not making a judgment call on the characteristics of the Galatian people in general. When he says, how did he term that there? He said, oh, foolish Galatians. He's not saying that the Galatians are foolish. He's saying that you and what you were, the way that you're handling what you've already been trained in is foolish. Okay, this rebuke is directed solely at those in the church. Now, Paul at another time actually says something about a group of people, lumping them all together in a negative connotation. Can anybody remember where that was? No doesn't say anything about it. He says about Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, etc. So he does make 
And but what he is doing there, okay? And I think we uh, uh, talked about this at another time. But what he is doing in that particular book, and we'll get to that commentary on YouTube in about three or four or five years, whatever. But um, uh, what he does there is he is quoting what is called the Epimenides paradox. Anybody know what the Epimenides paradox is? When he says Lucretius. Yeah, well, that's right. Epimenides is was a Greek philosopher. So he's citing a Greek philosopher, and that Greek philosopher said that Cretans are always liars. Well, why is that important? Because he is a Cretan. So if what he said is true, then he is a liar, and what he said is not true, because he always tells the truth, or he is always a liar, right? So it's a, so it's a paradox, and there's a reason why Paul does that. There's a, he's getting them to think clearly when he says that particular thing. And so, and there are paradoxes all the time in the world, things that seem to be contradictory or cannot be resolved, but we use those as problems of logic to help us think other areas through. So that's a little side question, but I just want to know if anybody could get a Maserati today, and nobody did, so um, I'll drive it home. But uh, next time I ask you a question like that, be on the ball. Okay, um, he next questions them, meaning the Galatians, their state with, who has bewitched you? The word he uses is unique in all of the New Testament. It's baskayano. It means to give the evil eye to, or to fascinate, or bewitch, or even overpower. They had been pursuing one course, and they were stolen away from it by a bewitching power. Where they had pursued Christ, they now pursued a false path, so that they would have not obeyed the truth. They're Paul presented them the truth. They accepted the gospel of their salvation. These false believers, these Judaizers came in, told them something else, and they have been pulled away from that path. In other words, if they had been bewitched to not obey the truth, then they were pursuing a lie. Whatever the false brethren had introduced was a counterfeit and could only lead to a sad end. Their message stood against the truth that Paul had presented to the Galatians, which was that before their eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed, as he says, as crucified. The term before whose eyes gives the sense of something which is openly and publicly displayed. It is as if a masterpiece were hung on an open street for any and for all who passed by to see, which is exactly what happened with Christ, by the way. It was crucified right where anybody could have seen it. It was the central tenet of his gospel proclamation, and it is what all of the true Christian theology is dependent on. I say all of the true Christian theology because it's the same theology that Peter spoke about. It's the same theology that Jude speaks about, that uh, James and uh, James and I guess that's all of them speak about. They all had a unified message in the gospel message. People will say, well, Paul's the only one that preached the cross. Well, that's untrue on its surface, okay? We don't need to go deeper than that. But secondly, just because Paul uses the word cross a lot, or just because one of them uses the word um, lamb without spot or blemish, doesn't mean that... If Peter said exactly the same that Paul, Paul said, then we wouldn't need the writings of Paul, right? Each person writes... When you read the book of Jeremiah, you read the book of Jeremiah knowing that it was written by somebody different than the book of Malachi. That's the way it is. They present the same message, but it is just stated differently. James writes completely differently than Peter does. It, it almost seems like it's, you know, it's more of a wisdom book than a, a um, you know, a gospel-centered 
message at many points in it, okay? But it is the same unified message. And this is the problem with hyperdispensationalism, which Charlie Missy asked me to talk about, is that they take things obvious on the surface and they say, see, this proves, and it doesn't prove anything. Like I said, if you read Isaiah and you read the book of Obadiah, you wouldn't even know it's in the same book unless it was contained within the pages of the Bible and you understood all of the theology of the Bible. So these people are making great errors when they present these type of you know, nonsense arguments that there are two Gospels, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. That is heresy. That's all it is. It's heretical because it will keep a portion of the people in the world from being saved. That's no different than what John Hagee does when he says that Jews are saved through adherence to the Mosaic Covenant. He does that. He's heretical. You know, I'm going to say something. I mentioned somebody a week ago. I don't have the quote right now. Um, do I have it? Let me see if I have the quote. If I do, I'll read it, and then I'll ask you a question. If not, I'll have to read this during the Prophecy Update. Be there for the Prophecy Update on Sunday, and I'm going to read you a couple of quotes that were put out in the past week and a half. And I want to ask the church to listen to what I say and then say, does that sound like sound theology or not? And I'm going to ask you if you know who said that, and then after that I will tell you who said that and why it is so important to not get caught up in idol worship of pastors and of people that present their message on YouTube, because doctrine really matters. I don't have it. I looked. It's not printed off, so we'll just have to, for right now, overlook that, but uh, we'll go on. Um, <clears throat> I'll read that last sentence again. It was a central, central tenet of his gospel proclamation, and it is what all of true Christian theology is dependent on. The reason for noting the crucifixion will be clearly seen in Paul's continued words of the epistle. But his motive for introducing it now is tied directly back to his exchange with Peter in the previous chapter. Let me read you that again from Galatians chapter 2. It says in verse 19, For I through the law died to the law that I might live with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I will live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. All right, life application. Stay far away from Judaizers, Hebrew Roots Movement teachers. I was just on Facebook, unfortunately, a few minutes before we started. Somebody had made a post about bacon, and of course, all of the people that think they're holier than everybody else started posting why we can't eat bacon, taking verses completely out of context, taking them out of their proper dispensation, saying things that had no basis in scriptural reality at all. I'm very sorry for these people because one, their theology is lacking. Two, they're setting aside the grace of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And three, bacon is delicious, and they're missing out on it. But stay far away from Judaizers, Hebrew Roots Movement teachers, and anyone else who would attempt to sway you to fall back under the law of Moses. Should you, you know, one of the arguments that was made, well, we're not under the law, but the law is God's standard, and so he expects us to meet it. That is completely convoluted thinking there. One, if it is fulfilled in Christ, it's fulfilled in Christ. And two, that's the point of Christ's coming was to fulfill the law. So that Gentiles who never had the law in the first place never need to go under the law, ever. The standard is met in Christ. The dietary laws, Paul speaks against them in Romans 14. He speaks against them in um, Colossians chapter 2. He speaks against them all the way through the book of Galatians. 
We need to have proper theology and getting stuck under people like this will only lead you into bondage. That's all it's going to do. They will profit off of you and you will be the ones that are stuck living your lives in misery. There is freedom and there is grace in Jesus Christ. Okay. And there's bacon to be eaten. All right. Should you pursue that path falling back under the law of Moses, it will demonstrate that Christ's death meant absolutely nothing to you. Do not follow this perverse, ungodly, and unholy path to destruction. And that is exactly what Paul is going to continue to warn about with almost those words. I mean, different words, but this, the same idea being presented. Okay, we are in three, two. Give me a second to open this so I got right where we're at. Go ahead, three, two. You're not using your table. My, oh, thank you. That's the problem. I knew there was something wrong. Okay, go ahead, three, two. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Okay, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Okay, it's a little different. Yes. Same idea, but a little different. Said, where is that more uh, closely related to? Somewhere in the book of Romans, the hearing of faith. 10.17. There you go. Okay. And also Romans chapter 10, uh, uh, hearing the word uh, 10, 9, and 10, where he speaks that as well. But 10.17 is exactly what I was thinking of. So Burke Carrico does get a Maserati tonight. Okay. Uh, comments on 3.2. Paul questioning the utterly ridiculous nature of the Galatians turning to the law in order to please God asks a very simple question, beginning with the words, this only I want to learn from you. Okay, he's, tell me this. And this is what Jim was doing with the same people. I, he was on the same thread as I was. And he would say, just answer this question for me. And of course, they won't answer the question. They start attacking from another angle because the answer is so obvious that they can't answer the question. Okay, in using the word only, in Greek, the word monon, like we would say mono, okay, monon, uh, it is showing that nothing else is needed to determine the truth of the matter and to settle the question. So tell me this one thing only is what Paul is saying. Upon completion of his thought, there would be no more need for proofs of any kind to show how absurd their new path truly was, okay? Then the question is, did you and here it is. This is the question for every person that wants... The, I'm talking about Gentiles now. We'll let the Jews figure this out on their own because they have to deal with their own cultural issues. But for every person here, any person that's listening, any person that's watching, did you receive the Spirit? In other words, were you saved by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? When you came to Christ, did anybody here go and observe the law of Moses Go and sacrifice at a temple. Did you do all of the things that were required under the law of Moses, which we go through every single week? We've been in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy now for almost 10 years. Did you do those things in order to be saved by Christ? Anybody? I don't see any hands up here. Okay, not one. Everybody's kind of silent on the issue. All right, the answer is... And we can take it, let me stop, do, do I, yes, I do, I, Acts 10, so I'm not going to go there because it's down in my, my notes, I'm glad I looked ahead. Okay, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, when I say receive the Spirit, it doesn't mean an outward demonstration of Christ working through you in tongues or some crazy thing like that. Paul says that when you believe, okay, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, go look at it, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. It is a deposit. It is a guarantee of your future redemption. Now, 
we don't see the Holy Spirit. God is, no man can't see God, nor will he ever see God. But the Holy Spirit is the one that says, I have sealed this person for the day of redemption. That happens when you believe, Paul says. And what is it you believe? The gospel of your salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for my sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. Okay, so did you receive, this is Paul's question, the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? First, it is evident that they received the Holy Spirit in an outward and dem demonstrable way. This happened at Galatia just as other early believers did. This is not the way that it happens now. This is during the apostolic age, and it was a sign to the apostles that they had received these people. Okay, They were given gifts which they used in accordance with the reception of the Spirit. Paul now confronts them directly by asking if those gifts, which were proofs of the Spirit, came by works of the law or by the hearing of faith. That's Paul's words. Did they come? Paul knew the answer because it was he who was there leading them to Jesus Christ. He saw the effects of their salvation, and today we can see the effects of somebody when they come to Jesus Christ. You give them the gospel, they break down and they say, I can't believe I've led my whole life apart from Christ. And all of a sudden they say, look, I'm saved by the blood of somebody that did this for me. I, and you see it. You don't need to have an outward demonstration of you know, speaking in tongues or flying around the room. on a, you know, you know, None of that is necessary. The conversion is as evident in you as it can be if you were converted. You know that you were saved. All right? All he had done was tell them the gospel. That's it. He didn't say, okay, everybody here, all of you have been eating pork for the past many years, and you're going to need to go to the law of Moses, and you're going to have to spend seven days in isolation, and then you're going to have to go down, and you're going to have to sacrifice this animal. He didn't go through any of that with them. There was none of the Leviticus laws that were applied to these people. Not one. They probably still, at the time Paul wrote this, had no idea what the book of Leviticus was saying. Okay, they were too busy in the book of Isaiah reading about that or something. Okay, so they had no idea and they had none of those things impressed upon them. This is exactly, this is exactly what happened with Cornelius in the account of Acts chapter 10, which I was going to cite to you and then I realized I may have written it down. I'm glad I did. So here we go really quickly and we'll take you there. Acts chapter, I'm loving this, this book. Wow, it smells so good. It smells like real leather. Oh. Praise God. Okay, Acts 10, 44 says, while Peter was speaking, he's there, he's been invited into a Gentile's house, something that Peter could not have done otherwise, proving that Peter is under the same uh, grace as Paul, he's speaking the same message as Paul, etc. But he goes in, uh, while he's speaking the words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard. Every one of them got up that morning and they had, they went out to McDonald's and they got bacon and uh, sausage and egg McMuffins and all that kind of stuff, and they ate it. They're, they did not go through a dietary uh, conversion process required by Leviticus or anything like that. All right? And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues, and they magnified God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water? water baptism, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, okay? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Another heresy of hyper-dispensationalism is to say that you do not need to be baptized. That only applies to Jews. It doesn't apply to uh, Gentiles. And I'm sorry, 
Jesus was resurrected, and after he was resurrected, he gave the ordinance of baptism. He said, go and uh, instruct all nations, making disciples and baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The disciples did not baptize anyone into the Holy Spirit. They did not baptize anyone into the Holy Spirit. Who baptized people into the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit did. And as an acknowledgement of that, for 2,000 years, faithful Christians have faithfully taught that we are water baptized because the Lord commanded it as an outward sign of the inward change. And that is exactly the same, guess what, as anybody? The Lord's Supper, which we take every single week. There are only two ordinances that Christ gave us. It's not a very difficult thing for him to ask and for us to do. As he said... Do this in remembrance of me. And he said that before he was crucified, anticipating he was crucified. If he said that, and we still do it to this day, then who, yeah, who would dare say that what Christ said after the resurrection, go be baptized, we shouldn't do. Now, there's a reason why that happened, okay? Peter, well, we'll talk about that some other time. I have it at the beginning of the Romans uh, uh, teaching. I have it at the beginning, I think, of the 1 Corinthians teaching. And so if you want to know, go watch those. If not, we'll do it again maybe sometime. Why did they have those incidents occur, and why was it important, and who was the key behind it? All of that we'll talk about again sometime, but especially when we get into the book of Acts again. But for right now, understand that that is something that was mandated by the Lord, and it was obediently done by the apostles. Even Paul records it in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, I didn't come to baptize, but to uh, preach the gospel, it doesn't mean that he didn't baptize or that other people weren't supposed to be baptized. It was that that is not his main focus. In a church of 5,000 people, the pastor is going to give the gospel, right? Is it his job to baptize 5,000 people if they all come to Christ that day? One, it's impossible. You can't baptize that many people in a single day by yourself. But two, he has other pastors that take care of weddings, take care of baptisms, take care of these things like that. And he would stand up in the pulpit and he would say, I was not called to baptize. I was called to preach. That's exactly what Paul's doing. He's not saying don't be baptized. So everything has to be kept in its proper context and hyper-dispensationalism is heresy. Please understand that. All right, so we're going to go on again. Um, like those with Cornelius, the Galatians had simply heard the word. That's all they did. There was nothing else that Paul was speaking to them, and all of a sudden their hearts started accepting Christ. They believed, and they probably didn't even have to say it out loud. I believe they just simply started speaking in tongues, just like it happened at the house of Cornelius, okay? And then they received the Spirit. They had whatever food they had ate that day in their belly, food which was unclean, according to the law of Moses. In fact, it may still have been on their breath at that time. And yet the Holy Spirit went ahead and baptized him into himself anyway. They were uncircumcised in the flesh, something which excluded them from entry into the covenant community under the law of Moses. And that takes us to the argument that the one person said, well, you know, God will be displeased with you, even though you're not a, a Jew and you're not under the law of Moses, it's still a standard and you must obey it. Well, guess what? So is circumcision, isn't it? Isn't that the primary example? Yes, it is. And it is not only the primary example, it's the primary example that Paul will argue against in the next three chapters. Very specifically, if circumcision is not required, and yet it's part of the law of Moses and God's standard, and he expects us to live by it, and Paul says, don't do that, because if you do, Christ will profit you nothing. 
then obviously having bacon is not going to keep you from being saved or being disobedient to the Lord God. Okay, obviously. And everything has to be taken with logic. Unfortunately, it is not today. People do not think clearly. They are not willing to think clearly. And when that happens, I'm not trying to belittle people. I'm st stating the truth. We are not tr taught to think clearly in this society. That's not an attempt to belittle anybody. But they have taken that out of the curriculum in schools, and people do not know how to think clearly. And I've recommended it before, and I'll do it again right now. Get a book on critical thinking and read it. And take the little, they'll give you little things that you can do, how to write a, an article without fallacies in it. And you're going to see how hard it is. It's really difficult to think clearly. It's very difficult. You have to rewire your brain. I'll give you an example of this so you can understand this. How long has it been? Eight years, five years since dad had a stroke? My dad had a stroke, okay? And he was literally ruined in his mind. He couldn't do anything. He would try to pick, the, the glass would be here and his hand would be here. And he'd think he's picking up the glass because his brain is no longer focusing to, through two eyes. He tried to do it with this hand and he'd go in the opposite direction. Nothing worked properly. It, now he knew who he was, etc. I'm not talking. I'm talking about motor skills. I'm talking about the brain functioning properly. Okay. And what did he have to do? He had to relearn everything. Even Bob in the the church here, he'll admit to you. He's the first one that will say, "I cannot speak clearly anymore." And he he thinks one thing, and he'll say something completely different. And his brain, he's getting better and better every week, but his brain is taking a long time to heal and to think clearly. That is exactly what it's like when you are raised in a school system that does not teach you critical thinking. You can no longer read the Bible from its proper perspective because guess what God does? He thinks clearly. He thinks everything out clearly. Everything is logic with God. There's nothing illogical. God is the author of reason. Everything in the Bible will make sense from a logical perspective. It may be something that doesn't need to deal with logic, but it will always be logical. Always. As a matter of fact, Norman Geisler kind of scared me the first time I heard it until I thought it through. Logic is, is logically prior to God. It's not prior to him in time or in a sequence, but it is prior because without logic, there would be no God. There would be no ability for a divine being to think things through. That, that, it, 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 think it through because when I heard him say it, I thought, well, that sounds blasphemous. I'm like, what? But God has to think logically, right? He does, and he presents himself logically. Therefore, logic logically is pre prior to God. It's not in a system because God is, okay? I am who I am. He, there was never a time that he wasn't. He is outside of time, space, and matter. But when he said that, it took me a while to think that through and say, you know, that's absolutely right. If God is illogical at any time, then it's not the God of the Bible. Okay, it's not saying that logic precedes God in any way. That's not what he was trying to say. He was making a point about logic. Everything that God does will be logical. Please go to get a book on critical thinking. Take the little exams that they give you. Write out things, and you will benefit from it. And it's hard. I mean, when I, that was one of the most difficult courses. I thought that I was going to get a B or a C or maybe even a D in it. I didn't. I got an A, but I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get through this book. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this course because you're thinking completely different than you've ever thought before because we're not taught to think clearly. Whereas that used to be standard teaching, you go back 100 years, 
That was a part of standard curriculum from second grade or third grade on. Here's how you think logically. No, don't say that because what you're doing is you're making a fallacy of illicit major. Well, what's that, Mrs. Bean? Well, a fallacy of illicit major is. Oh, I see. They don't do that anymore. So we have no idea that what we're saying is contradictory without even knowing it. Okay, we'll go on. Don't want to beat that to death. Um, they were uncircumcised in the flesh, something which excluded them from entering into the covenant community under the law of Moses. Further, they had never observed a Sabbath, that's right, day. And they had never made a sacrifice down in Jerusalem. They probably didn't even know what a Jerusalem was being up in Galatia until Paul walked into their lives and said, you know what, I want to tell you about the Savior of the world. Okay, their clothes did not meet the requirements of the law of Moses. Okay, nobody there wore a talit. Nobody, or a, a, yeah, a garment, we'll call it a talit, but they, nobody wore a garment that had a tzitzit on it, which is that little thing that is prescribed in the law of Moses. And in the tzitzit, you have to have what? A blue thread. Nobody there had them. And guess what? Today, the Jews don't have them in there. They've got a, a tzitzit on their garments, but there's no blue thread. So they're in violation of law as well. Okay, bad news for them because they are still obligated to the law of Moses, unlike all the rest of the world that was never under the law. But that was, does anybody remember what that blue thread stood for? It was blue in the Bible signifies the, begins with L and ends with W and has an A in the middle. Anybody? The law, adherence to the law. And that blue cord was to remind them of their obligation to the law. Anyway, they failed to meet those standards. All 613 of the law of Moses, they failed. And yet, by mere faith, without ever having done anything, by the standard of the law of Moses, in the work of Christ, they received the promise and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful God. You know what? Let me, I, I, let me see if I can find it. I think it's Isaiah 45. If it's not, I'll waste your time for a couple seconds. But I just want to show you how wonderful what Christ did is. I think I've even got this coming up in a sermon here pretty soon. But uh, let's see here. Um, Dun, 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 dun. Israel's only savior. Um, no, I'm not seeing it, and I'm not going to spend all day on it, so that's okay. Um, uh, it's 40-something, 40 44, 45. Like I said, I'm not going to go looking at it all over, but he says, basically, he says, you know what? I have been called to redeem you. I've been called to bring you back to myself, and he says, but it's too small of a thing for me to do that. He says, here it is, the servant, the light to the Gentiles. Let me see, it's got to be right in here. Um, here it is. It's Isaiah 49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, speaking of Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I'm speaking of the Redeemer, Christ, but about the, the tribes of Israel. So when he says, my servant, it's speaking of Christ. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. There it is. So the Gentiles don't need to go down to Jerusalem. They don't need to adhere to the law of Moses. They don't need any of those things. The Redeemer came to redeem, not to condemn. We are condemned already. We don't need to worry about that part of it. What we need to do is to get right with God through Jesus Christ. And we can do it. But if we start going under the law of Moses, the way these people are saying, it'll never happen. They, they are self-condemned. We'll talk about that as we continue through Galatians. Okay, the word for hearing that Paul uses here is akoi. 
It is used of inner spiritual hearing that goes through receiving faith from God, goes with receiving faith from God. This is exactly what Paul wrote about in Romans 10, 17, which you said a minute ago. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Galatians had heard the word, they had believed what they heard, and they had received the spirit. This only that Paul submitted for their consideration should be enough to get them and thus us to clearly and to think clearly and to realize that they were headed down the wrong path now by inserting the law of Moses into their lives. Did you receive the spirit by the word of hearing or by observance to the law? And the answer is, we didn't even know what the law was. We just heard you tell us about a guy down in Jerusalem that was God incarnate and that he came to die for our sins and we believed it and we started speaking in tongues and all those other things. That's all that should, that book of Galatian, Galatians should end right there and nobody should ever make this error again. And yet Paul will have to go through another three and a half chapters or more because it ends in chapter six and we're only at the beginning of chapter three in order to get this point across. And today, today people do not get this point across. I have to do something more than what Jesus Christ did. You're diminishing the cross every time you say, I need to do this, or I need to do that, or I need to do one thing, or I need to do another. Three, three. Oh, wait a minute. What is, let me uh, get back. I skipped one paragraph. What is truly sad about this is many today are presented with exactly this evidence as is recorded in the Bible. For example, the account of Cornelius and yet they reject the simple, obvious nature of what is provided there for our understanding. Or they twist it. They take a little part of it, and they say, see, that doesn't apply because, and they make something up which has nothing to do with what is being conveyed. God is being logical and orderly, and they stop, and they make it into illogical and disorderly. All right, in doing so, they continue down the road of apostasy and stand self-condemned because they failed to trust in Christ and in him alone for their salvation. What a waste. What a twisting of the mind by wolves who creep in and refuse to be obedient to the Lord, who reaches his hands out to them, asking for a simple act of faith. And you th think of this. I mean, this is the kind of thing that Jim and I will talk about when we're at mission work. Think of this. People will spend all of this time and effort on Facebook all day long arguing for the law of Moses and not eating bacon instead of simply trusting in Christ. And they're wasting their lives. They're literally throwing away their souls in order to show how smart they are. Or just tell somebody about Jesus. Or just tell somebody about Jesus. Just get out there and talk about Jesus and forget all of these little side issues that you have hang-ups on. Tell people about Christ. Life application, have faith in Christ and in him alone to save you. And to keep on saving you. If he saved you and then you have to do something after being saved in order to keep that salvation, it was never of grace through faith. Never. Because it doesn't matter at what point in your life you have to start doing something, it means that the first act was insufficient. Everybody know that? Can you think that through? If he saved you but you have to do something after that salvation, then he didn't save you. You are unsaved, and he is not the redeemer of mankind, especially not for the Gentiles. 3-3. Three, three. Wait, let me open this up. Okay, here we go. 3-3, three, three. go ahead. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? 
There you go. Are you now being made perfect by flesh? Okay, so that's a human effort. This says made perfect by flesh, which is probably closer to the original, but less understandable. Anyway, Paul uses the same word here as in verse 3.1. Foolish. Are you so foolish? The Galatians, without thinking through or even considering the stupidity of their actions, literally, that is what it is. Foolish is the word, I, I'm sure it's the same word, moros, meaning a moron. It's stupidity of their actions were willing to follow these heretical Judaizers onto apostasy avenue as they headed for heretic highway. His words are intended to cut them off and redirect them to right doctrine drive. Get on the right doctrine drive and keep driving it all the days of your life. Don't get onto apostasy avenue or any of these other crazy things, all right? They needed clarity of thought and they needed to rationally consider what their actions meant. And so he questions them in an attempt to get them to think through what they were doing. Having begun in the spirit, that's Paul's words, having begun in the spirit shows that these Gentiles had never, never, ever been under the law of Moses. They started out completely separate from the people of Israel and the covenant promises and the expectations that were outlined for them. But then came the message of Christ. When the gospel was preached to them, they didn't suddenly get a crash course on how to observe the law of Moses. They were never circumcised and they did not give up on their afternoon pork roast. Instead, they believed the message of Jesus Christ and they received the Spirit. If the Spirit was given by the Lord, then how could the Galatians think that by adding in the law, which the Lord fulfilled, they could now be made perfect by the flesh, or as he says, human effort? His version, adding in the law was not a step forward, it was a step back. And I would suggest that it was a giant, a galactic step back. Paul's use of the word for being made perfect shows the stupidity of this choice. It is in the middle or passive voice, and so it is more literally rendered, having begun in the spirit, are ye coming to completion in the flesh? That's Vincent's word studies translation. The words are filled with irony. Then they are intended to show the Galatians, and thus us, because this is recorded in Scripture, the utterly absurd nature of expecting to be perfected based on the law of Moses when it could never perfect anyone. Not one person from the time of the giving of the law of Moses, when it was established with fire, consuming the animals on the altar and saying, I approve of this law, I approve of the priestly mediatorship of Aaron and his sons under the law, all of it was done, and guess what? Every single person under that covenant, with the exception of Elijah, who was taken to heaven, every one of them died. And remember that two of them died within the first week, and those two were sons of Aaron. And if you go watch that sermon, what happened at the end of it, and you see Moses' reaction, and I say at the end of that, if Moses had gotten a critical thinking book and read it, and then he thought clearly through what he had said to Aaron and the, what Aaron had said back to him, he would have sat down on the ground and he would have said, this is utterly pointless. That's what he would have said. He would have broken down in tears probably. What am I doing here? Go watch that sermon and you will understand what I'm talking about. The two sons died. They had eaten the sacrifice of sin for the people. They're supposed to take away the people's sin in picture. It's what type does, uh, the typology, what Christ does for us in typology. And guess what? They died. So that means what? 
Yeah, horribly, by the way. So go watch that sermon. You'll understand this. Stop being so bullheaded about the law of Moses and not eating bacon and observing the Sabbath and all of the things that you cannot do and just trust Christ and have a ham sandwich. Okay? I mean, it's just I don't understand it, how people can get this in their heads. All right. Let's go on. The words are filled with irony. Okay? Vincent's word studies, as translated by Paul, the words are filled with irony and they are intended to show the Galatians and thus us the utterly absurd nature of expecting to be perfected based on the law of Moses when it could never perfect anyone. Instead of arriving on pleasing parkway, they had been misdirected to senseless circle. And they will spend the rest of their lives, unless they get out of it, going around on senseless circle. And in the end, when they die, they're going to go somewhere that they wish they had not gone because they failed to simply believe the message of Christ, the gospel of their salvation. Not a single person in Israel's history was able to meet its expectations apart from Jesus, who is God. It's the only way he could have made it. He is God. Every other person died or one was raptured out. Okay. Because of this, Christ needed to come and fulfill it on our behalf. For a person to reinsert the law then means that Christ's work means nothing to them. They can say, oh, I love Jesus. I want to be pleasing to God through Jesus. It, that's untrue. That is a lie. It is not true if they say that I am going to give up on these things in order to be saved, in order to continue to keep my salvation. It means they do not love Jesus. They have enmity with him because of that precept. Because if Christ fulfilled all those things and they are now trying to refulfill it, then it means that they have enmity with him. Okay? That's all that means. For a person to reinsert the law then means that Christ's work means nothing to them. It is the ultimate slap in God's face. The ultimate slap. Those who would do this have attempted to reverse the order of what God intended. This is seen from the hand of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll go there really quickly, see what I was referring to. These pages are small, so it's going to take a while for me to get used to this, folks. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. I'll go on. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And so, and as is the heavenly man, so are also those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. But they have taken that and they have turned it backwards. Life application, it is the epitome of arrogance to assume that we can make ourselves more pleasing to God by observing aspects of the law of Moses. Christ fulfilled it, and so placing our faith in his work is the only thing that we can do in order to be pleasing to him in this regard. Think it through. Think logically. Trust Christ. Keep the observances and exhortations that you follow from the New Testament and reject anyone who would tell you that it is right and proper to reinsert the law of Moses in part or in whole in order to be in a right standing with God. Reject them. As a matter of fact, you know, people start arguing that on my wall, they'd be gone. I don't mind going to somebody else's wall, and, but I'm sorry, I'm not going to have somebody saying something that is heretical. And this is clearly heretical on my wall on Facebook. I'm not going to do it. I'd rather have a Dem Democrat tell me why I shouldn't vote for Trump than that. I'm, I'm just no way. I, it is not allowed. People can say pretty much anything they want. I don't read a lot of posts, but if I start seeing that there's a problem and somebody's posting that, I'm not going to have it because the gospel and the 
message of the Bible and of Jesus Christ is way too important. Tell somebody once, tell them a second time, and then Paul says, have nothing to do with them. That is not an exhortation. That is a command of Paul. You tell somebody, you give them correction, give them correction. If they're not willing to listen to correction, get them out. Verse 3, 4. Oh, oh Burke's got something special for us. Go ahead, Burke. Solid rock, the song. Yes. The solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Righteous. Nothing. That's right. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean. On Jesus' name. name. Amen. Yeah, that's perfect. Yes, good theology. Yeah, that's yeah, perfect. Yeah. Nothing else. Christ plus nothing. His shed blood plus nothing. There's nothing we can add to it. There's no point in even trying. Bacon is too good to give up. I ain't doing it. Okay, I gotta stop saying the bacon thing because it's like exalting it or something. It's just another food, but it is an example. I could do the same thing with working on Tuesday or working on Saturday, but that's not as exciting. Bacon makes it exciting because you just are in anticipation. But what's that? Bacon. It's bacon. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, I'm not trying to exalt it. I'm just using it as an example, and it's a good smelly example. That's all. Okay, three, four. <clears throat> Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing? Okay, this one says in vain. Have you suffered so much in vain? If it really was in vain. <clears throat> Three, four. There is no record in the book of Acts concerning the suffering that is mentioned here. But Paul's words in this epistle form their own record and witness to it. Have you suffered so much for nothing? That was the question. Well, there's no record of that in the book. But by the fact that he is writing it to them, it means that they have suffered somehow for the name of Christ. Got that? Okay. He could not have written to the Galatians about their having suffered if they didn't, in fact, suffer. Maybe they got cut off from family. Maybe they lost a job down at the, uh, uh, you know, the Roman citizen factory where they make the Roman passports. They stamp out the, the things. They say, I'm sorry, you can't do this. You're a Christian. Whatever. They suffered. And that is the the uh, point that Paul is making. And so it is obvious that some sort of ills had befallen them after their Christian conversion. The nature of this suffering can only be speculated on, but several obvious possibilities are. One, a loss of fellowship with family or friends, okay? I get people to email me and they say that I have no fellowship with my family because of Jesus. And I gotta tell you, that breaks my heart. I mean, I, you know, if you could think of dividing over something in a family, let somebody believe what they want to believe. You know what I mean? Just if they want to believe in Buddha, okay, go ahead. But let me tell you what's right. The problem is that when you tell them what's right when it's Jesus and it means that everything else is wrong because he is exclusive, that becomes a problem. But people can't let that kind of stuff go. All right. So anyway, and you know, it's some it's very critical in families. Other, it's not as much. I got family up north. They're all a bunch of liberals and I don't hate them. And they don't hate me. We just don't get along on politics and stuff. And they know that I believe Jesus Christ is the only way, and there is no other way. They absolutely know that. How they want to handle that, I don't know. But they overlook my faults, I overlook their faults, and then I will not compromise on the gospel, and we still get along. Anyway, but I feel so bad when people say, I've lost my whole family over this. I mean, I, I, it's just terrible. Anyway, loss of fellowship with family or friends. Two, a loss of employment. That's happening a lot more today. We see that in the prophecy update from week to week. People are being fired, and they're saying that it's because, well, you know, you're not performing. But the fact is that two days before, they had gone and told John about Jesus, and John didn't like that. And he went and told the boss, and they fired him because of it. And he didn't even do it during hours, 
right? He went out there on Saturday night and he said, John, let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, no, I don't want to hear about him. Okay, well, yeah, tell me anyway. Uh, you know that Jesus is the only way to go to heaven. And John gets angry about that. And he says, well, my mom died before she accepted Jesus. And so I'm mad about that. And he goes and tells the boss and they fire him. You know, that kind of stuff. So loss of employment. Three, persecution by those who still held to whatever religion they had left behind. Okay, they all went to the bar on Saturday night and these guys believed in Athena and this one believed in uh, what's uh, Diometres or something. And uh, uh, he says, I just met Jesus. I'm not going to come to the bar anymore. I'm going to be going to uh, Paul's church and we're going to be talking about, and they say, what? And he tells them about it and we don't want to hear from you anymore. Okay, so they've, uh, they don't want to leave their religion. And then for persecution from the Jews, of course, who detested the truth of the gospel found in Christ. That still goes on today, not as much here, but you go to Israel and those people are really persecuted at times. They really are. They get nasty things in their mailbox. They get stuff put on their doorstep when they walk out and they step in something that it happens. And all because they want to tell people about the Savior. They came to save them, right? So there are four possible examples. In these or in any other ways, the Galatians had suffered directly from having received the gospel and then having turned away from their old ways of life. It should be noted that Paul ties his thought in with the suffering and not in with their accomplishments. Right? Isn't that interesting? Their suffering was because of their faith in Christ and not because of their works. And what has Paul been saying about them? They're getting away with it. They don't want to suffer for the name of Christ. And that's why they're proclaiming this. We'll go back in chapters 1 and 2 and read it again, right? Their suffering was because of their faith in Christ and not because of their works. It is a connection to the constant theme of Paul in all of his writings. Salvation by grace through faith. It is this by which they were granted the Spirit, as was noted just two verses ago. In a way of getting them to think this issue through, he asked them concerning this suffering have you suffered so many things in vain? He is asking them to think on the high cost that they'd already paid for calling on Christ. Was it simply a pointless moment in their existence? However, in hopes that they hadn't completely turned away, he qualifies his thought with, if indeed it was vain. In other words, maybe their faith was still there, but it was just simply misdirected. The, the purpose of his letter is to determine the truth of the matter and then to redirect them if possible. Having said that, because I don't want to get you know anybody thinking the wrong thought, those people that were saved and received the Holy Spirit when Paul spoke to them will never lose their salvation. The problem that Paul is addressing here isn't for their salvation. One, it's for their rewards and losses. Two, it's for their continued happiness in this life. Because they have been saved by the blood of Christ, they have been uh, living under grace, God's freedom in Jesus, and now they're being brought back under the bondage. So that's the second thing. And the third and most important issue that Paul is concerned about, which he doesn't explicitly address, but it is there in the writings anyway, is what? The next person, the next person that comes into that congregation will never be saved. They will not have the proper gospel message, and they will never be saved. The people in the Hebrew Roots Movement churches may be saved when they went in there because they were in another church where they received Christ, but their little Johnny that's three years old and is being brought up under Hebrew Roots will never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're condemning their children by that act, right? 
That's the important thing to understand about that. There are three aspects of this that are that important. They're that important for the human soul. Life application. What have you given up for Jesus Christ? Anybody? For some, the answer might be not very much. In America, usually it's not very much. There are times where it is, but usually it's not. But for others, a great deal was given up in order to pursue this new life. By turning to the law of Moses for a right standing with God, everything that was lost or which resulted in suffering for Christ was in vain. Does Christ's cross have so little meaning to us that we would turn from it into something that can never save? Is that where we're at? We're just, oh, I'm going to go back to the law because it makes me look good. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's about Jesus. If it's about Jesus, then live for Jesus. Okay. Three, five. Have you suffered so much for nothing? If we, I just did, I'm yes. sorry. Five. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Okay, this one is way different. It says he instead of God. They probably inserted it. But therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Okay, it's a good question. Did he have the same things going on under the law of Moses ever? No, no, the Lord made demonstrations of his holiness, but you don't read of that type of thing. Now, there were times where Saul prophesied, and it'll say that, or there were certain prophets that were selected. That's not what Paul's speaking about. He's talking about a completely different thing, the new reality in Christ. Okay, Paul speaking to the Galatians directly asks a question which is tied to the same logic as his words spoken to Peter in verse 2.16. He then continued with the same thought to the Galatians starting in verse 3.2. And so he begins with, therefore, in essence, based on these things, it's time to make a logical deduction from what we already know. In order to get them to think it through, he forms his words into a question beginning with a known occurrence by saying, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you. These words are a general repeat of what was stated in verse 3-2. In order that the answer to the question will be as plain and as obvious as possible. Now before I go on, I said a, making a deduction. What is a deduction? How do you make a deduction on something? One half plus another half makes a whole. That's kind of, that's, that's kind of, you know, to me, I think of a deduction, just to give you an example that you will completely understand, is that I am blind, okay, and somebody gives me something, and I feel it, and I say, well, it, it feels like, you know, it feels like leather, and I feel paper in there, and obviously, this happens immediately with a person that's blind, but they pick it up, and they're like, what is that, and then they say, it's a book, Okay, that's a deduction. This and this and this obviously result in that. That is what Paul is asking them to do. Make a deduction. I presented this, I presented this, and I presented this, and this is what happens. Now, you can do that with anything. You can take somebody out in the field and give them something that they've never felt before, and they will be able to say it's hard, it's cold, it's this, it's that, and pretty soon they will be able to tell you what it is without even knowing what it is in, it, in itself. You know what I'm saying? They'll be able to say, well, I think it's a ball. It's probably made of uh, uh, a precious stone because it's cold, you know, and cold is, you know, and pretty soon they'll say, I think it might be a jade stone. They open it up and sure enough it is, or it might be something a little similar. That's the deducing things. 
Okay, and so if you forget that, just close your eyes and think, how do I reason something out without seeing it? And that's, you're making a deduction. Okay, so um, where was that? Uh, three, five, um, let's see here. Um, yes, these words are a general repeat of verse three, two. It was God who supplied the spirit and it is he who worked miracles among those in Galatia. To this, there should be no doubt in their mind. They never had anything like that before. Paul presents the gospel and all of a sudden these things start happening. Okay, so no question in their mind. As this is so, Paul's following words framed as a question demand an answer. Does he who do it, does he do it, meaning God, does he do it? And those words are inserted by the New King James Version. Does he do it by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's asking a very simple question. All of these things happened. Was it by works of the law or was it by hearing of faith? And they cannot say, and this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to make it reductio ad absurdum, uh, uh, reducing it to the absurd. They cannot say that it was works of the law because they didn't know what works of the law were. They didn't know what the law of Moses demanded. They didn't have any, any training in the law at all. Paul walked in off the street and said, I got good news for you. And they had never heard of a Moses or of a Mount Sinai or any of those things. This happens all around the world every day. Everywhere in the world, somebody gives the gospel to somebody and they believe and they could, to this day, could not tell you what a law of Moses is. Okay, this is what Paul is doing with them. Okay, it says, as this is so, Paul's following words framed as a question demand an answer. By works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Just as Peter was called out in the previous chapter for not thinking this issue through, the Galatians are now being called out as well. I need you people to sit and listen and think. An answer is expected, and it can only be the latter by the hearing of faith. It cannot be the law. It's impossible, and they know it. But this is where Jim and I were talking about earlier. There are people that will hear that, a logical argument, and they will dismiss it. it Mom and I were talking about at dinner last night. We had dinner last night. And she said some people, it, cognitive dissonance is the word. You can tell somebody that that chair there is green and the one next to it is black and they'll say, oh no, that's not true. Those are blue and pink. And it doesn't matter how much you talk to them, they will always say, no, even though they know it's true, they have shut down that information. That's cognitive dissonance. And that's what people get in their theology because they're not willing to think. They're not willing to say, maybe I'm wrong. They heard something and here's the real problem with it. They've never read this. They don't know what this says. And they just are told a few verses out of context in the rest of their life. They will, they will die by the words that they have heard, not knowing anything about this beautiful treasure God has given. Not picking on them. It is simply a fact. Okay. The Galatians were Gentiles. They never had the law. They went directly from being pagans without God in any way, shape, or form to being saved believers who had received the spirit of God and who had witnessed the miracles without having done one single deed according to the law of Moses. Not one. As a side note, the word for miracles here is dunamis. Anybody? Dynamite. Dynamite. There you go. It can mean either miracles such as healings, tongues, or other demonstrations of power, or it can mean a miraculous working within an individual, like we saw with um, uh, Kathleen here, changing their life through the power of the Spirit. I mean, she already knew the Lord, but her life has changed because people are praying for her. She probably had it in herself to pray to God constantly, and the Lord responded. I mean, I, I'm not one to, I am not one to, Tom probably, if anybody knows this, I am way, way out of the, the uh, miraculous. 
I am the least miraculous person you will ever know. And yet, I pray. Why do I pray? Because I, God can do it, all right? I diminish when people do the miraculous in church every Sunday from 10 o'clock until 11.30, and the rest of the week they post all over Facebook that their lives are miserable. I, I deny their miracles because they have no idea of what God can do. And I guarantee you that when she comes in here, if she makes it back, you know, I mean, she hasn't come for a couple weeks because of the fall, but if she comes back, I guarantee you we're going to see a radiant person. I mean, you go through something like that. I was talking to my friend in North Carolina today. He called me this morning. We went to high school together, and he was healed by the Lord. His brother, he didn't believe in God. He didn't want to hear about Jesus. And his brother said, can I pray for you? He had terrible skin affliction. And he said he was healed immediately. Wow. He gave his life to Christ, and he has been following Christ forever. Okay? God can do these things. It doesn't mean he is going to do these things. But his brother prayed for him, and he said it would have taken cortisone shots and days and days of continued suffering before he got over it because he had gone through it many times, and yet he said, I was healed immediately. Hey, I, I will not diminish the Lord when it is truly the Lord, okay? So, um, the, the latter is probably what Paul is thinking. Though they may have demonstrated outward gifts of the Spirit, as early other early believers did, there was a greater change in the Galatians, wrought by the Spirit, and this had come about entirely apart from any works of the law. Not one work of the law, and yet all these great things happened. Their lives had been changed so much that they were willing to suffer for the name of Christ, as we just saw in the previous verse. Suffer. Life application. We're going to go ahead and finish with this one because, is that correct? Uh, this is 3, 5, 3. Yes, we're going to have to. We won't be able to finish the next one. Okay. Um, life application. With the Bible recorded. We have its words which tell us that we are saved by grace through faith. We have its words which tell us that by deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. And we have its words which tell us explicitly and numerous times that the law is finished, annulled, and set aside. Based on this, it must be that we are saved apart from the law. Further reinserting the law, which was fulfilled in Christ, is to say to God, I know better than you do. Don't be that crazy. Stand on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. I mean it. I, you know what? I told you at the beginning of this that I get excited, didn't I? I said, I'm, you're going to see me get excited. I'm going to get animated. I get more animated when I'm listening to the book of Galatians read in the, the car than any other book. I, I will be driving and I'll be almost like this because I remember the grace bestowed on me. And I know that I would be diminishing Christ if I was to go away from that. I would be neglecting what he had done in my own life. And we all need to have that attitude. Even if your conversion wasn't some great miraculous conversion, you still were saved by the same great Lord to the same great salvation. Yeah. It, I mean, that's it. You know, some child may have been told about Jesus since he was this big and he just grew up in the faith and he loves Jesus. And hey, he may not have had a big conversion, but he owes Jesus just as much yeah. as the guy that came out of drugs and alcohol and pornography and all the other things in his life. Okay. I, I love the book of Galatians because of the freedom that it proclaims. I don't mean to say that I love it more than any other book in the Bible. I love all 66, but I, everybody knows how much I loved Leviticus. I, I, I was almost, you know, giddy the day that we were starting Leviticus. I just, this is such a good book and it's so Christological. 
Galatians is that way with me as well. It's just wonderful. And I got to tell you, I'm so excited. These Goliath, Dave and Goliath sermons are just, i just enjoying it so much. There's so much Jesus in there. I, you know, I told these guys, we got a couple minutes. I told these guys before the class, I know that you might watch the first sermon. You say, well, you know, I kind of don't know what he's talking about. And, you know, because when you listen to a David and Goliath sermon, what is the one thing that everybody preaches on? You can slay the giants in your life. And I'll say something like that at the beginning and the end of the sermon this week. You know, you got troubles and you can work through them through Christ. You can slay those. That is not the point of this passage, okay? That's not it. You miss everything when you see that. I will tell you that the second sermon and the third sermon and the fourth sermon, you're going to say, oh, that's great information. I mean, you've got all these notes, but I will tie it together in the last sermon, and I really hope you enjoy it. Most sermons are between 23 and 25 pages. I'm up to 30, and i got a long way to go. It's going to be a long sermon, but tough. If you don't like it, watch it from home and watch it in two parts. But I, I just, what a marvelous passage. I'm so grateful to Sergio and Rhoda for having done this because we worked on it together. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And I said, well, I'd like to do the Valley of Allah. And they said, well, we'll go. And they were so excited. So thank them for for that wonderful, wonderful blessing. Anyway, here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for your word, and we thank you so much for Christ who makes that word possible. We read about him, but it's he that did these things, and you sent him to do it. A great father sending his son on a mission of mercy for the people of the world, and he fulfilled it perfectly, and he gave his life up in fulfillment of the law, and how dare we even try to do better than him? Help us not to have that attitude, but to have the attitude of receiving the grace of Christ and accepting that all things are good that are set before us, whether it's working every day of the week or taking two days a week off or eating this sandwich or eating that sandwich. It is all approved by you because you have accepted us in that state. And we thank you for that grace and may we never diminish it. Lord, we certainly lift up anybody that's having troubles or trials or difficulties in their life right now. We thank you for those that you've responded to and healed. And when you don't do that, please give them wisdom to understand that you have a greater purpose for their suffering. And Lord, help us to be responsible in these ways. And may it be so, and may it be to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's okay. It's kind of a spunky tone. Let me turn this back, and then we'll say goodbye to everybody online. And hang on. I pushed this button. Don't push the wrong button, Charlie. Oh, I pushed